this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan, host of I Change Justice podcast, inviting James White from Canada to be our guest today on the call. James, could you speak to our audience for a second and give us a background a little bit about why I might have invited you here. It has everything to do with inclusivity, has everything to do with helping people who are dealing with many different levels of what are disadvantages in a culture such as ours. So give us a little history about who you are and what you stand for. Okay, thank you, Joy. Uh, I'm James White from Vancouver, Canada, and I've been working for the past 38 years in the community living field. And I worked with people who were, I would say, devalued due to the fact that they were born with different disabilities, intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, on and on. <clears throat> I, uh, It's interesting, I just sort of fell into that career. I volunteered when I was a young man at a sheltered workshop, they called it, because they used to always take the folks and put them in segregated settings to make sure they're okay, which I found a little unusual. Anyhow, I started working there and just really enjoyed working. I didn't really feel like it was working. That's the thing about it. 38 years ago, I fell into this career and it didn't feel like work to me, which was beautiful because the people I was supposedly working with were just very inviting, very, very fun to be with and had a good zest for life. So tell so, me about, so tell me about where you, where this was, because you've lived <clears throat> in Eastern Canada and in Western Canada and the mountains and woods of Canada. I mean, you've got a diverse background anyway, but Tell me about a little bit about how you migrated or what this migration and all these this diversity. A lot of people talk about diversity training or they talk about inclusivity. And what I have found in talking to you is you've got a different perspective on inclusivity than most. And you've developed a program that's about an inclusivity program, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But tell me a little bit more about this weird mix of stuff that you have so much wisdom in. I love that you used weird. <laughs> <laughs> I was an old hippie. I'm an old hippie, I guess, as you can tell from what's behind me. Um, in 1973, I decided I was hitchhiking out West and I went out and I went out with, I actually ended up going with some friends in an old van and we ended up living in, Vancouver for a short period of time. Then we ended up out on all the islands, Vancouver Island, Gabriola, all those places. So I was always around all these hippies and everyone was pretty relaxed and we just had a fun life. Then I ended up moving to the Kootenays, which is Nelson, BC, which would be about three hours up from Spokane. 
so they uh west kootenays and there was a lot of communes there and all that kind of stuff so i was around a lot of people who just were living life off grid a lot and i was in a tree planting co-op so we all worked together and we used to go out and plant trees up in the woods at some point i was doing a lot of forestry work all that kind of stuff and then the industry kind of had a sputter and that's how i ended up volunteering in that sheltered workshop which then brought me into the career i did for 38 years so what you're telling me is that you went from the East Coast, which is one culture. Ontario. I left Ontario. Yep. And then you came to the West Coast and you went out into the islands, all the way out into the islands and and explored a lot of different diverse perceptions from hippie communes. Because if you grew up during that period of time, which I did also, you realize that there's all kinds of people with all kinds of perspectives dealing with all kinds of things. Because we were also dealing with the Vietnam War. And it caused a lot of political conversations, even mm-hmm. while you were doing all this other stuff. And then you go back to the tree planting. And this is when I was talking with you at one point, you talked about the regeneration and you learned to do, you know, generation things. surveys. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Which is very different. And then you also inv- in, were interested in this community living or social services world. I, I did that as a teenager. I worked in a, a place called Browndale, which was an agency that worked with emotionally disturbed children. So it was basically the that was the old word for trauma. So it was all these traumatized kids from bad backgrounds and whatever. And I worked with them for a while. And I kind of knew that was when I was in high school. I When you did career day, I went out mm-hmm. with a social worker. <laughs> and did a career day and it was all this and the stuff he was dealing with and I thought this is interesting you child protection all kinds of stuff and so in the long run I <clears throat> ended up at about 30 I think when I got into this community living field came full circle to what I really did want to do so when was <laughs> it that you connected with Okay, I'm going to put a string of several things together because one has to do with the addiction industry, right? One with the trauma industry, one with the reservation schools and the destruction of an entire culture, and then all the stuff that came after it. Because working in the third in 38 years in downtown or in Vancouver, BC you ended up working in the most trauma, one of the most traumatized cities with some of the worst addiction issues with poverty and the intermix of many people, because this is people from displaced land. They've been moved off their land. And there's a lot of research now into how when you get displaced from where you live or displaced from where you are, it causes enormous addiction issues, trauma issues, trauma bonding and all the problems that are now coming up with the reservation schools and the indigenous culture. So give us a bridge right in there about how did these things emerge in your life and your awareness? Well, um, I started working with, a well, there was all kinds of people that were getting supports. I was helped move people out of institutions. So there were, there was indigenous people there. There was all all cultures there as well. And then when I worked for several years in group homes, and then I became a 
manager for an agency called Community Living BC. They're the agency, they're a crown corporation, which gets funded by the government. And they basically, if you have a child with a disability, you go to them and they start at 19. So it's an adult. And you would go to them to say, I need funding to do whatever, employment, housing, whatever it is that you need. Now, part of that, some of our people we supported were Indigenous folks, and some of them were in the downtown east side living in SROs. What's Uh, SROs? uh, Single room occupancy. So it's like old hotels where they'd rent out rooms and, you know, there'd be 10 rooms on a floor with a shared bathroom. That's kind of the downtown east side. There is more housing being built, but it's too slow. So you end up with a lot of people living homeless, a lot of people living with addiction. Couch surfing, addictions, uh, uh, really severe hospitalizations, always in and out. Spent a lot. St. Paul's is the downtown hospital. I would be there all the time working with the psych department to support some of my folks who are Indigenous and and some just all my different people we were supporting not my people but the people we were supporting and so yeah I had a lot to do with that so I got to meet a lot of the agencies that did a lot of the street work like uh, John Howard Society they did a lot of stuff and so we would work with them around how can we because we have a portion of money how can we get our money in to support what you're doing. So we were having lots of meetings. I was involved in a task force because there was this young indigenous woman who was, I think she was murdered and she was like 20 and she just had fallen through the cracks. We didn't even know about her. MCFD, which is the Ministry of Children and Family Development. They look after folks till they're 19. Then they come to us. We didn't even know. And so it was all over the news because this girl was murdered. She didn't get any support. It was horrible. So, and I forget her name. I think it was Faith or something. So all of a sudden, the Ministry of Children Family, the police department, I was on a task force. How do we stop this from happening? Still got a lot of work to do. And we did a lot. That's how I got involved with a lot of the downtown east side. And I had the privilege of working with like, the different housing, Portland housing societies and mental health groups and all of that to where we, my, I had 20 staff. Some of my staff were on a, a lower level of the same task force who were boots on ground and they would communicate with each other to figure out where this person was because he was homeless. Oh, we saw him last week. He's doing pretty good or no. And, and so we would, then start to give funds to help those agencies work with this person. It was, it was a real interesting mix of people and how, how can we support these folks? Because there was no trust. Like you said, the government took their land through their parents and schools. So a lot of these kids didn't go to the schools or stuff, but they were, with families that had disintegrated because of the trauma from residential schools, the 60s swoop, which they talk about. I still remember as a kid in the 60s, there'd be some Indigenous kids living with these white families. And I'm, and the poor kid, he'd play hockey and they'd all call him chief. And mm. it was not good. So what do you mean? What is the 60s sweep? What was that? 
But basically the government came in. There's some good books and I'll remember them. And basically they came in and as soon as you turned six, they came to you and they took your kids or you brought them and they put them in those schools because they wanted first take this is take the Indian out of them. Awful. But that's what it was. Take their language away from them. Take their parents away from them. It was not a good thing. And that was going for years. In fact, our residential schools were mimicked by your country as well. And apartheid in South Africa used a lot of what Canada used, which is not a proud moment to talk about, but that's what they replicated a lot of it on. So one of the things that's interesting is, as I have learned, the more I've delved into the criminal justice system and the side effects of trauma that come out of it, and then I started looking at the doctrine of discovery and the side effects that have come out of the domination system that came out of Europe and some of the beliefs that came from the way that you treat people. But it was interesting when you started to talk to me about how some of this stuff actually originated up in Canada. And I hadn't, because I'm very American centric, like US America centric, my entire history and training had to do with what was happening in the civil war, what was happening with the war of 1812, what was happening when we were fighting the British and all the colonization was a, was from my person-centric, my ethnographic heritage. And then when I was talking to you and you were talking about, wow, some of these things came out of Canada mm-hmm. before they came to the U.S., before they became the habit pattern of domination that actually spawned and got taken over by Hitler. Like, I didn't even realize that the war, you know, World War II and the whole all this stuff, this punishment stuff, and the numbering of people by, you know, branding them with a number, all that stuff actually precedes it way back. And it's a world issue. So talk to me a little bit about that thing. You know, how was Canada even doing some of this stuff before the U.S. was? We only have a couple minutes here to talk because, about this. That's because the British ran the country and the British are very good at a caste system. Look at what they did in their own country. So they came to Canada and you had a bunch of Scottish and English people running the country. Once they beat the French in the war of Plains of Abraham, they had a war between them and the French ended up with a little couple of islands off of the East coast and the British took over. So the, so there was this thing where it was kind of like, the British, then there's the French, and then there's the Métis, which were French and the French voyageurs and, and Native people, and they had kids together. So they were the Métis. And then there was the Indigenous people. So there was a whole level. So when we started to form our country in 1860s, John A. Macdonald was our prime minister, and there was going to be a whole gathering of all these groups, the Métis, the chiefs, And they were going to basically create our federation, our confederation. John A. Macdonald decided he didn't want them, that the the indigenous folks were going to be a caste below that were more workers and your servants. And the Métis were just nothing to the point where I don't know if you know about Louis Riel. Uh -uh. He was the head of the Métis and he fought back about it and they ended up 
there was a bit of a war, a little one, and they tried them for treason and hung them. And that was the end. The Métis were just, so now the Métis have a status and there's the Indian status. So basically the government still doles out money. So they've never, they've never let it totally go. There's Indian agents or whatever you want to call them now. So, yeah. So, and wow, so that's really a lot of that was adopted down and the states took it on then because it's already there. Hey, looks pretty good. Seems to be working. Let's use it. So now, we've done reconciliation and done a lot of work slow, but it's happening and it's accepting. And the Pope came and apologized in Midland, which is where the martyr shrine is. Midlands in Ontario and there's a shrine there because there used to be the back in like the 16s and 1700s the Huron were there and they basically tortured this I forget his name he's a saint now but this um, missionary ate his heart did the whole thing and so there's a shrine there and for some reason even though he's coming to apologize he came there once, the Pope, that wasn't with an apology, which to me was still domination. Supposedly, he's apologized, but I, I don't know the details on it. So it's very interesting. So this national issue of reparations or the international issue and conversation around that, the international conversation about the doctrine of discovery, the, the discoveries, the multiple papal bulls, the whole conversation around the dehumanization of people and making a cast of people that is de are, are actually non-human, that's part of that conversation. Then there's a class that's like this slave conversation, the people who can be bartered and brokered and 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 hired for labor. And then there's these other caste systems. So we're going to have that conversation on another call. I want to go back to the interesting thing that when you talk about inclusivity, what do you mean about that? I'm going to come back. We're going to take a quick break here, but I want to come back to what have you done since learning all this diversity and this conflict that's back here? I want to move to how have you grown over those 38 years to a point that you are now and you're actually le leading inclusivity courses and starting to do an entire movement since you've retired? So let's take a break. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. So welcome back to the call, James. I'd like you to talk a little bit more in this segment about how did you transform uh, from being this self-described hippie to being a bureaucrat, which is one of our terms in a, in my arena, to being um, a government, sort of a, a revolutionary, because you worked in a way, whether you were not revolting, you were moving from the government-controlled mental health hospitals through to this service-based world, and then you became one of the leaders in your government systems and then evolved into a nonprofit leader and you founded the Asada um, group. So talk about that Asada cooperative and how you moved from this one phase to the next, to the next, to where you are now. Can I just make one correction? Absolutely. 
I didn't work with mental health institutions. I worked with institutions for people with intellectual disabilities. Ah. And a bit of a difference because there's still some mental health institutions in BC. There are no institutions now for people with intellectual disabilities. We shut them all down in the 90s, which I was part of, which made me feel really good to see that go. That's why we need people like you describing what actually happened as opposed to the stories we think we know. So basically what's happened is the people, some of the people I've supported over the years have dual diagnosis, which would mean they have a mental health with a, an intellectual disability. So they still are in a system where we have to work with our health partners who run those mental health programs and we have to work with them to support that person um so i <clears throat> i started so, working hold on, hold on so what i just heard you say is dual diagnosis is mental health maybe plus substance use or no, not substance no. use well, let's be clear <laughs> about these things well the substance use is just an offshoot i'm talking about basically a person's born with an IQ of less than 70, and that's considered under the DMS-5 intellectual disability. I see. Or they can have a higher IQ, and we have a, where I work, Community Living BC, we had a, a, a division in that area where they may have be on the spectrum or have fetal alcohol or stuff, but still quite capable. But they they are three standard deviations from that, which basically means somebody who's autistic, if you left them by themselves in their house, they'd starve to death and they wouldn't know how to wash. They wouldn't know how to, that's just one. Of, so they hit those three, then they get services. Whereas a person that's just the 70 IQ or lower, get services under another area. So we have those two. Now we get some people who come in <clears throat> who may have schizophrenia, but they also have an intellectual disability. So we fund portions of their service. So we would help them with housing. We'd fund that. And we'd fund, like they call them day services, whatever it might be, employment, whatever. Whereas to support the mental health, we would work with the Vancouver Coastal Health and they're a government provincial government, and we work very closely with them around how they can do supports and we can do supports. It was a little bit, they're a massive department and we were small and it was David and Goliath at times. And I used to have to go up against three psychiatrists, a couple nurses and whatever to fight, to get people what they wanted. And it was not fun, but I won most of the time, but not all the time. <laughs> Anyhow, so, so that's really helpful because what you're so addictions saying, floats into that as well for some people. So dual, so drug abuse and substance abuse disorders and dual diagnosis of a substance abuse problem is very different from what I just heard you say about the mental mental classification or capacity or ability to actually function. So yeah. when we're talking about dual diagnosis, it could be in in actually physical dual diagnosis complications or drug and addiction abuse, which is a completely different conversation, although they intersect. Is that correct? 
Yes. So the dual diagnosis is in the brain and whatever, whereas the addictions is the trauma from some of the stuff that's happened in their lives, in my wow. eyes. Now, I could be corrected on that, but that's what I've seen. <laughs> and so it's self-medicating is a wonderful way to try and escape that. I see. So that's why some of these issues that are coming on up with fentanyl and the extreme self-medication problems that we're dealing with is, I mean, that makes a lot more sense understanding the deep traumas that many people have gone through over the past three years specifically, or over the past five or 10 years, depending upon the economic challenges you face. So, okay, then go ahead and talk to me about what ASADA is. So it's interesting. Um, when I when I first started working with Community Living BC, there was a leadership program, and I had been working for many years in nonprofit agencies. And when I went to the government, I decided I was a social worker, but I wanted to be one of the managers because that's what I'd done for years. And I did a leadership program, and what I did was I talked with some self-advocates that I knew, and, and we got a grant to do a um, self-esteem workshop. So we got $5,000 through a group called SASI, which was Self-Advocates Seeding Innovation. And we started building a, a workshop on self-esteem because that's a big thing. A lot of people, we have issues with it, but when you're considered lower caste, that's a big issue. So we wanted to really support people to just get out and be the best they could be. Well, during that, I had about five self-advocates, uh, Barb and Ryan and a few others. And I started asking them, well, what, what do you want to accomplish out of this? And they said, well, we we'd like to use our life lived experiences to help people understand all the the roads not to go down mm-hmm. and the way that helped us get to where we're doing pretty good in our lives. So we want to use that. We'd like to be our own bosses. And then they said a few other things. And I said, well, you know, in in my hippie years, I had a tree planting co-op. We were all equal members. We paid shares. Why don't we put a co-op together? So the funding body, we said, would it be okay if we used a bit of money? And we hired this really neat lady who helped us put our bylaws together and get it all together. We put it in and we be, were a nonprofit agency now registered with the Register of Companies, Canadian Revenue Agency, all of that. And we basically teach workshops. So within that, the first workshop was our self-esteem workshop. And during that time, I had been doing a lot of work for years with a group called the Learning Community. And if they all their materials are person-centered materials. So it's like the big workshop we would do is called People Planning Together. And what I did was I trained some self-advocates uh, to teach this two-day workshop. And they basically built their own plans. And it's a plan to help set goals. But goals are no good unless you have a plan. So we said, this is how you do it. But within that, a lot of folks had a heck of a time even understanding that we're going, agencies keep doing your plans. It's your turn to take control because it's your life. Here's some tools to figure out what you want in your life. 
And so they would share their plans. And the first day was really just getting people comfortable, understanding what they could do in their lives. And then the second day was taking some of the materials that they did. Plus, we would do an interview in the evening. We would get them to talk to somebody they really trusted. And there were these questions about, you know, what are the great things about me? And if you had all the money in the world, what would you do to make see that I had the best life possible? Stuff like that. They bring that back. And then we started teaching them how to put it into great things what people like and admire, uh, what's important to you in your life, what's important for you in your life, which was all that stuff. But we had to take two days because important to and important for, for some people is very confusing. Important to is what you love. Important for is what you need to do to stay healthy and safe to get it. So they teach that. So we, but we've developed a whole bunch of other workshops on grief because a lot of people just think oh they're handicapped we shouldn't make them go to the funeral or anything no they're people everybody needs to go through the grief process it's no different wow it's really interesting because what you're talking about is very unfamiliar to most conversations that i've listened to over a period of time because i started out working in an empowerment system which was for leadership development. I grew up in 4-H. And so one of the things that I did is I, I gravitated because I was poor. I wanted to win and I wanted to go to human potential and I wanted to learn leadership development. And, and because I was not labeled as developmentally dis disabled, I was capable and I was intelligent. It was easy for me to go right into, oh, leadership is what you ought to do. And that's how I grew my life. So when I was listening to you, what I realized is that when you're working, let me see if I caught it, when you're working with people who have been labeled as disabled or less than or non, basically non-capable, they're dealing from a deficit to start with. So even the thought that they could be self-manageable or self-achieving or have a goal or have, I mean, all of that is just sort of it's just off the table. So what you're saying is that over the years of working with this, you started working with people and realizing that, wow, we can, in fact, help these people who want to help themselves to help themselves. And you had to work them through this self-esteem thing first before you could even get to the point of setting goals and visions and processes. Is that what I just heard you say, because so, I think that's a significant starting point. So think us. of it this way. You're you're told right away that you're just defective. And then everybody does everything for you. Not everybody. Right? The families who did everything in their power to get their kids like and I'll, there's families that did that. And but there's a lot that they put their kids in the institution because the doctor told them to do that. They didn't know any better. And so, yeah, you got these people who have been basically put into jail for not being born right. It looked like a jail to me when I used to go there with less rights than people in jail, to be perfectly honest. And now they come out and you say, the world's your oyster. But everybody's done everything for you in that institution or in your life. Everybody's done a lot for you. Now we're saying, make a choice. And people are so going, it's, what? It's like our training 
cripples them up or deforms the growth process because we have a system that classifies them here and then everybody's follows the doctor, the institution, the training, the teaching. And we do it unwittingly actually hobbling people from being able to live into their first potential. So what you've done through the Asada co-op is go down. And I also want to note that when you're talking about this learning community, you're talking about a national, a nationwide. International. 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 Yeah. And that's where the person-centered learning comes. So you went outside of the mainstream, outside of what you were trained to go get new information, to bring it back, to then work with people who have lived experience of growing out of their own uh, hobbled condition, if you will, so that they could become leaders in their own right, self-advocates. That's why ISADA, give us the name of ISADA again. It stands for Empowering Self-Advocates to Take Action Cooperative. And we went, ooh, that sounds, ASADA, that sounds like a Kuma Matata. We're going to ASADA. <laughs> but on our, our official thing, it's ASADA Cooperative. And then they have a, the Empowering Self-Advocates to Take Action. So you built a whole bunch of programs and we're going to come back in a couple minutes. We're going to take another. Quick I'm, I'm going to say my team and I built a bunch of programs. Very good. So your team and you have built some programs. And then a year or two ago, when you retired, you recognized and they recognized in the aftermath of COVID that you guys had some survival skills and some leadership skills that you could bring forward and you took a growth leap. So We'll be back in just a minute to talk some more with James about the Asada Cooperative. And now, and in the next segment, I really want you to talk about the Inclusion Project because I find that fascinating. So you jump from leadership to inclusion to community development to compassionate cities movement and the sky's the limit. So we'll be right back with James White from Canada. Are you a member of Patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. Welcome back to the call, James. Now, now let's hear what you have to say about this moving from simply growing into self-advocacy and self esteem and knowing your value and building workshops to help yourselves. But then you move to the next phase. Talk to us about that. Well, I, I retired or I retreaded my tires and went down a road that I've been going down for quite some time Been teaching a lot of these workshops. So one of the things before I had left Community Living BC was we were doing a thing called training more trainers to teach that two-day workshop I said people planning together so we got a grant from them to do that so I'm in the process of doing that we got one year just got another grant from them to do another year because they love it because it creates plans that people need to use to get funding from them so it's a win-win second thing we did though there was this innovation grant they and it was a hundred thousand dollars and I said we're gonna get that and my team was and I just said, no, 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 we're going to get that grant. I've already visualized that $100,000 check going in the bank. So we spent 
we had a month and we wrote up a proposal and it was called, I've got it right here. And uh, basically it's called um, Welcome Home, Creating a Guide to Support More Welcoming Communities. Because So that was our project title. And the description, working with communities to identify what would make their community more inclusive. Um, so basically what we thought was COVID has really knocked the crap. Like people, a lot of people weren't getting vaccinated, so they were getting fired. So all these folks who had worked with people for years, it was like they were, it was bad. There were people at home because they couldn't get enough staff. So they would, they had to shut down day programs. It was a dog's breakfast, basically. So everybody and, is being traumatized, was heavily traumatized by COVID. And we yeah. have, I just want to reiterate, so you don't have to go into it, but we have had so much trauma as civic trauma, as a result of all the COVID issues, both in Canada, the U S <laughs> around the world, it's created a nightmare of divisiveness, which has polarized all kinds of people. So that's the context within you're talking about. So you went, okay, we know something about survival, right? Let's talk about that. How do we survive in the aftermath of chaos when everybody's got shut down? Can I just read you the project summary? Please. So what we decided to do was we wanted to get into three communities within British Columbia and start working to figure out how do we get people back together again? So it, this, so the project goal, the co-op wants to go to communities throughout the province, virtual and in-person when possible, and help them create a work kit that has tools for the topics identified in our conversations. We will then offer some of the workshops we have. Examples, employment one-page descriptions, which is a four-hour workshop, self-esteem workshops, plain language workshops, because we need to do that for a lot. We need to do that for a lot of people, our immigrants, everybody. You need plain language so people understand stuff. Grief workshops, supported decision-making workshops, loneliness and people planning together workshops. So then we can also help customize any other workshops or presentations required to support the community to work towards their goal of being a more inclusive community. Um, and then we talk about a whole bunch of partners that will work with us. And then we talk, one of our goals is to identify the champions in the community that want to see this succeed and train them how to be trainers and how to use the work kit that the community identifies as required. This allows the project to be ongoing because then we can work with the communities and they, because they want it to know what can you do to make this ongoing that we don't have to keep funding it? So we wanted to work with the community. So an example would be we're up in Terrace right now and Kitimat. There's two small northern northwest communities near the ocean. Kitimat has a big aluminum smelter and Terrace is more loggy. They're about 30 miles apart. So we went up there and did our people planning together workshop. And they said, oh my God, we haven't had anyone in 20 years do a really good workshop. We need more of this. So we decided, okay. So there's a self-advocate group called Talk Northwest. And we talked with them and said, we wanna work with you. We've got $5,000 grant to give to you to just go out into your community 
and do like a world cafe where you, it's like a town hall meeting. And the topic would be, what can we do to create more inclusion in our communities? How can we get our seniors out? How can we get the people with diverse abilities out? How can we get everybody sort of connecting again? Cause it's just got so pushed away. And what we would do then is identify, we talked about it as a toolkit and each community is going to be a bit different, but we, we, the world cafe would give us these gems that we could pull out and stick them in the toolkit. And it might be the rotary club saying, we got this, which can then connect with them, which then connects with them. And then the self-advocate group can say, we've got this and we can do that. So it was like identifying a bunch of our strengths and throwing these tools in the kit. So that's it's almost like matching. Kind of. Yeah. So on one of the people in Terrace who was going to lead it up is moving. But then when we talked with, there was a hospice group and, and an employment group and another group that she pulled in and they said, we love this. And they, they look at us like we're the Messiah and it's no, 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 you're doing all the work. We're just helping. And we just plant the seed and then we're available. We go, when they do their world cafes, we either come in virtually or we go there personally and support them to figure out how to pull it out. So we do like a graphic facilitation and write all the stuff down. And we have, and in the world cafes we do, we have tables and there's different questions. So they figure out the theme and then they have questions. And then we have people sitting down talking or we'll say you can write doodle. And then the table host kind of gets a synopsis of what was said. And then we give it to the person who chairs the whole thing. And at the end, we sit down and talk with the group. Well, we had the mayor of mission. So this is another town just outside of Vancouver. He just loved it. I have this two-minute video where he's just talking away about how good it is. I actually worked with him 31 years ago in a group home. So we had a connection. <laughs> Anyhow, he's so into stuff because he's got three First Nations in his community, and they're doing some really neat work together. But he liked, I said, I know some stuff about compassionate cities. So he's been interested in that as well and i said in fact at your world cafe whether you know it or not one of your council members knows about it and is included in it and he said that's good to know so karen ball came on and it told him more about compassionate cities so this is just sort of what it's kind of like all this stuff i'm telling you it's like you're grabbing all these gems and you're sticking them in the toolkit awesome. and then you sit down at the end and say, okay, how are we going to use these tools now? How are we going to connect with the Rotary or with the hospice or with the self-advocate group to start being together and doing stuff together? Well, just putting this project together, they're coming together. So this wow. has been really exciting. And so we're also doing one in Cranbrook, which is like the East Kootenays by the Rockies, close to Alberta. And their community is pretty excited and they have some small communities, Kimberly and a few other small communities around. So we're pulling all these communities together that are now working together. So we're creating an octopus of inclusiveness. <laughs> so how absolutely fun. And you're linked up with the Compassionate Cities Project, which again, so it's interesting how you start at the grassroots and you link this together with that and with some ingenious ideas and bringing forward the gifts that people have naturally, you start resourcing people, 
give them new tools. And as they move, develop these new tools, what happens is this builds the self-esteem of the community, which then expands out and builds greater self-esteem in different communities and people naturally network and people know each other. And so all you're doing is opening the gates on creativity and inclusion. And that's why you're doing this as an inclusionary process. And it's really impressive. So let me ask you a question. We just have a few more minutes. Talk to me about how this has changed your belief about how we can heal in the aftermath of all this trauma that has happened to us around the world and all the wars. And I mean, it's really easy to get depressed and think, oh, the world's coming to an end. We're never going to get past it. But I think you've gotten way, way, way past it. And you may have some wisdom to offer us because that's why, well, frankly, I started working with you across the border because the U.S. and Canada, we're a border city in Bellingham, Washington. We're a border city between Vancouver and B.C. And so with all the diverse problems that we have with religions and cultures and social differentials and then international business, international trade, commerce, the troubles in the Pacific Rim, the troubles in, you know, the fires that are happening over in, in the eastern part of Canada and the southwest of America, and we got all these disasters. I mean, it's really easy to be de depressed. So what is your, you know, pull out of a depression, pull out of oppression, pull out of, of whatever pressions you want, and let's move to a new place. What is your hope and what's your... um best wisdom that you could give in the next couple of minutes about what's up? Can I read part of our proposal? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Project NEED. Communities across BC are coming to grips with emerging awareness of the deep isolation and disconnect that COVID-19 has created for all citizens. People with disabilities and their families know all too well this experience and have indeed been preparing for a pandemic across their lifetimes. This awareness opens up a world of opportunities for people with disabilities to move into leadership positions within communities as we continue to navigate the pandemic. Asad has worked as a collective of people with disabilities and supporters to lead workshops, training, and make pres presentations about inclusion in diverse communities for 10 years. Our future plans include developing ways to bring these resources to interested communities and create opportunities for leadership amongst the people with disabilities who live there. Our plan is to, and then it just talks about building the kit, but basically I just look at everybody's potential. Like it's all out there. I could go into a, into a fetal position, but that's not who I am. And I learned that from a lot of the folks who have had oppression from the day they were born. And a majority of them didn't go into the fetal position. So they've given me strength to want to move forward. And so as a collective, we've moved forward and there's the potential. I've worked, I know self-advocate groups throughout BC, throughout Canada and the States and all I see is potential and, and intelligence and great leadership or the ability to bring people together. And I just thought, what better opportunity right now in such a mess to sit down and take some of the tools we have because they've had, they've been, as I said in that, 
they the family's been dealing with a pandemic their whole lifetime in a way and so they've they know what it's like so they have the skills to show people hey let's move this way into the positive realm of life everything's out there we're, we're just i like to think it asada is a pebble in a in a pond and it's a ripple effect and and as i watch and talk with my partners who go to these these community town halls and the stuff they tell me i just get so excited because there's all these potentials coming out from everybody in those communities let's put it together because that's the thing that we're doing as well there's all these people but we're not working as a united front we're all kind of fighting it and we need to get together and work as a group to help create this inclusion so we move from potential to possibilities to probabilities to production yes <laughs> so it's really fun you say it so succinctly and i get my hands waving <laughs> Well, the exciting thing is that, is that we had you down here to do a one of your workshops with the Restorative Community Coalition. And at the time, we were talking with some people who were dealing with deep homeless problems. Yeah. And it really brought home to me that having a home or a place to lay your head and having safety is a huge problem that we're dealing with. And some of the research around that came out of Vancouver, BC, actually with Dr. Bruce mm -hmm. Alexander talking yeah. about the globalization of addiction. And Gabor Mate is doing a lot of stuff out of trauma, trauma healing. Out of Vancouver so, as well. Yeah. I mean, the combination is that we are in the Pacific Northwest. We do have this concentrated trauma bonding situation. We have recent history with discovery of children that were buried as a result of the reservation schools. We've got current trauma. We got real world trauma. We got global trauma. We can do this united front. And we brought you in and you ended up meeting with, you know, Doug at Homes Now, Not Later, which is a, a tiny home village. And we're going to continue this movement forward. So I just want to say thank you so much, James, for joining us down here, for leading us and giving us information. And it really will be fun to do some inclusion workshops and some collaboratives and collaboratories. We're actually building a collaboratory so that we can bring the best of the wisdom that we have, multicultural, multinational, multiracial, multicast, multigenerational together. So thank you very much for joining us on the call, James, and we'll have you on another time. Hands across the border. <laughs> <laughs> and at, through the Peace Arch. Yes. Through the Peace Arch. and the. It was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.